Dystoblicans of the World. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The afternoon of November 11th, 1984, is where today's story will begin. Made of steel, cement, brick, barbed wire, and wood, Sierra Provincial Penitentiary was a chilly, sunless, creepy outlier in a warm, sunlit, springtime meadow. 450 of the prison's half a thousand acres were reserved for the adults, while the remaining tenth housed their juvenile counterparts. The blue sky had no effect on the domed prison yard where a fateful cohort waited in a common, vulnerable shiver. Joby Jr., Lindy, Quentin, and Escarn were in that crowd, as were Milburn, Merlin, Maxwell, Monroe, and their partners, Rebecca, Rochelle, Ridley, and Riley. The cohort's shivers shook harder when they listened to the message Gregorio Jr. gave to jails and prisons like the one they're in the custody of. The wait dragged on for three eerie hours and 45 straining minutes, telling every kid in the yard to consider it payback for all the people they've hurt. Joby Jr. vowed to have Quentin's back as he did in ordeals of their often lock-stepped past. Lindy and Escarn pressed their spines together like best friends ready to die, saving the other. An angry Milburn hugged an intimidated Rebecca tightly while Merlin and Richelle used their hand hold to stand tall and look tough. Maxwell huddled in Ridley's firm embrace to harden himself and sensitize her, but Monroe and Riley were so close to breaking down that it oozed down their cheeks and off their mandibles. A grating buzz hit the cohort hard enough to irritate their middle ears, aggravating their shivers as the yard's chain-link gate creakily and slowly slid open. Vance Hurtado Sr. stomped on out with his wife, Sophia, Rich her Sr., Sterling, and the others who sat on the juvenile unit's board that he directed. Nothing on their scowls or approach showed a skin pore that even tried resembling kindness or sympathy. Enjoying a fat cigar, Vance told the cohort that they now belonged to the La Cordillera, the last chapter of the Yellow Cross Correctional Front. Sophia harshly whistled at the guards pointing bulky rifles at the kids, activating their instinct to spray around them how 
they executed soldiers and civilians in mass during an invasion of some years ago. The gunfire had the cohort erupt in a scream almost as loud, cramming them to a space that didn't protect them from bullet shards or asphalt grains. Richter watched with a solemn nicotine gum-chewing intent that had the focus of a microscope. Sterling's scorned stare dipped her eyelids in the shade and stressed how much of her teenage self she saw in Escarn, racing her heart's desire to be her life's teacher. The spraying ceased as suddenly as it started, but the agony it caused persisted, irking Vance to tell the cohort to quit howling. Sophia said that tearaways like them need their jerry-built souls demolished, then correctly rebuilt from the foundation up. There wasn't a more perfect way for her to press in that crucial part than with a demonstration. Vance told guards in the wider facility to bring out the row and plant it between him and his board and the cohort. Kids like Rebecca and Maxwell felt their jaws hit the floor at the sheer rot all over the prisoners of that unit. Sophia said that the cohort better be grateful that their jumpsuits were white and not black like those worn by the row. Joby and Quentin shared in Lindy and Escarn's shock over seeing the day that dade again a spy the instruments of an inspirational revolt. Although now adults, the kids on the row were young enough to still have some innocence in them, turning white and feeling green when they saw the Merlot brothers and Valverde sisters. How judgment would pan out for them made death a state for them to fear being put to. It was the night after a day of an insolent conceit that persisted until guards took them out of their cells. Vance asked the row where their pride went, calling it the heart of their behavior not even a half hour ago. Sophia added that they deserved nothing other than to be the test dummies of a sentence Richelieu was hell-bent on getting right. Vance was eager for his next order to scar some sense into a cohort Gregorio thought would be a great bunch for one of his more angelic projects. He had faith in the Merlot boys and Valverde girls spearheading the move to the Yellow Crosses straight and narrow. Not one day had passed and Gregorio's rule was already dealt its first misfortune, which concerned the captured judges, politicians, and staffers. The initial massacres' fog cloaked his rounding up of said people in places both commercial and residential. 
then-provincial senators Joby Sr. and Grimsby Jr. were deemed by Gregorio as needing a re-education akin to what Mauricia got, but others in their bus weren't so fortunate. Looking out for ambushers, Yellow Cross troops escorted the valuable transport, rushing to reach Fort Kingfisher before the day got too old. They halted at a makeshift checkpoint at the end of West Clemente's town limits, finding it off to see no one enforcing it. More than a hundred people dressed like the troops pounced out of bushes, trenches, and trees like birds fed up with intruders walking too close to their egg-filled nests. The transporters hid their surprise by expressing how impressed they were with the mirage created to make the enemy think the checkpoint was abandoned. The troops who pounced took their silenced rifles out and opened fire in the time it would take for someone to quickly snap their fingers twice. Their transporting compiers were gunned down at such a speed that they were unable to even realize that the pouncers weren't who they appeared to be. The senators were in a disbelief as pretty as flowers until the gun people revealed their black hornet tattoos. That made the ambush make all the sense in the world as they funded it but didn't know when or how it would materialize. The Black Hornets used their disguises to transport the Senators to a hideout less than a mile away and 99 meters below sea level, meant to be a base like the one Roy Sr. operated, a kilometer thick rock layer stopped its dig down in its tracks. This got its leadership brainstorming fixes that could help them get over that hurdle. Then one night they listened to a story about an ostrich egg that was impervious to the strongest predators even as it sat out in the flat open sand. This inspired the leadership to structure their base around that egg, fortifying it in a mineral concealment as natural as the earth itself. Joby, Grimsby, and Provincial Chamber breathed a sigh of relief, got settled in and right to the work of freeing their families. Keening hit the prison yard's floor, ceiling, and walls at a hollowness eerier than the inside of a sheet metal room during a thunderstorm. Circled betwixt the board and cohort, the row limped, massacred in copies of a tie and bound Richelieu would use weeks later in a much larger and more public setting. Sophia told the kids in white to let the late states 
of their peers in black be what they see any time their brains conjure up a thought to resist. Guards swarmed the cohort, menaced them to lie on their bellies, shackled them like circus animals, carried them to the rose cells and tossed them inside. The kids in black didn't live to experience the modifications Vance ordered made to their block. Sensors in the walls and floors watched the cohort with a persistently sedulous ear and nerve. The warning spray and sentence carried out saturated them in a biting trauma that saw the day go to sleep and night wake up. Lone, flickery light bulbs were all that lit the rose cells, having learned a few things from a dungeon of the last century. An urge to fall asleep spread across the block, giving the cohort a temporary way out of their pain. While most felt that sleep was their chance to mentally regroup, some had the bravery to plan a resistance, but many others cared more about surviving. Not the tiniest bit pleased with the recharging's happening before its ears and nerves, the sensors set off an alarm that whistled like mad and at decibels that awoke the cohort at the first blare. Joby Jr. pressed his palms against his ear canals to minimize the noise entering them, and so would others in the row. He denied the sudden blare the pleasure of seeing his spirit be crushed, but Milburn used it as more fuel for his fire of anger and hatred. Riley's yapping for the alarm to stop touched Ridley such that she firmly hugged her, reducing her twin sister's pain but exposing herself to the noise's full extent. Maxwell had to use his wrists to cover his ears as his hands were in such a condition that it hurt to ball them or move his fingers. His mental agony caught up with the physical when he heard Ridley partly collapse into a catastrophically pained roar. Lindy pressed her ears with her hands in a way that rendered the alarm just about mute, but purposely ignored how poorly Escarn was coping with the noise. Quentin wasn't faring much better, and Joby's unwillingness to help formed profound fissures in the trust he had for his big brother. Merlin's eardrums pushed and pulled open cracks too small for the naked eye to see, translating the pain into a vision of himself, his brothers, and their partners being the mauling wolves Maya raised as a child. Having Monroe at its mercy, the noise had him let out the most deafening and devastating howl his blockmates had heard bar none. His cry roused the hungry, thirsty savage in Rebecca that spent its life 
shining through and laying dormant many a time. Rochelle, too, felt her inner animal inebriate her by pounding on her mind's walls, asking for fate to lead her, her partner, his brothers, and their mates to their rightful destinies. Watching the cohort from the Rose surveillance room, Vance was pleasantly surprised by how effective the alarm was in making them suffer. Sophia handed him a self-assured, I told you so, so lighthearted that Richter clenched his teeth in revulsion while Sterling cringed as if she caught a dog squeezing its diarrhea on her welcome mat. Vance called Gregorio to let him know that Operation Machine was progressing smoothly and should bulge out fruit real soon. Praised for and told to keep up the good work, he asked him what it felt like to finally rule Bromelia. Gregorio responded that he foresaw when, how, and why his star would rise as far back as the day his parents were butchered. He urged Vance not to see his response as him giving himself airs, yet couldn't help but rub his triumph in to every arrogant liberal arsler who thought the Yellow Cross would never regain its former power. Before hanging up, Gregorio called his enemies foolish liars for thinking they have him and his movement figured out, adding that there's kilotons more to it than a coup on election night. Dismissed by Sophia for the night, Richter and Sterling returned to a relaxing town right on La Cordillera de l'Est's border with Pais del Carbone. As the name implied, Walpolido was entirely within a land like the one all around Sierra, a hold concealed by its abyss low elevation and perception of being depopulated. Its residents slept under the sunlight and roamed before the stars, avoiding Gregorio's daily patrols and getting on with living. Elaborate fountains glowed in the dark toward the northwestern end of town, hemming in the old watermill where Walpole was born. The Rudels arrived at their villa that gave and took its respect for nature and desire to live in lush comfort. They joined guests in yelling surprise to Roni, who wept with joy over not believing that so many people came to celebrate her birthday. Richter Sr. and Sterling ate their cake slices, locked themselves in their office, and started up a tape recorder. Classified and top-secret materials cluttered the room by the folder and binder, processing into cassettes that were them retelling what they memorized verbatim. As Roni started opening her presents, Richter and Sterling inconspicuously handed their recordings to a baker's dozen of the adult guests who unobtrusively placed said tapes in their pockets. 
once the party came to a sunrising close, the adults who received the cassettes traveled to the fountains where it was chow time for the Pruss Blue Robins. They had the birds hold the tapes with their mouths and take them to a hideout within walking distance of town for its inhabitants to learn and use. Richter and Sterling watched the robins fly with the cassettes from their bedroom window, telling the cohort that help was on the way. Six days in the row enveloped it in a stuffy, humid haze of dead bacteria, sour sweat, and organic ammonia. Stuck in a racking squash between wakefulness and dreamland, the cohorts shared begging want to sleep, defined their every third thought, but their fear of hearing the alarm another time was every bit as potent. Plus, their vigorous efforts to scrub the executions off their minds were unsuccessful. The cohort couldn't unhear the upsetting sobs their opposites in black fell to as guards took and tied them to their death poles. Their shattered hearts broke even more hearing the late row tell Vance that they didn't want to die and to find it in him to see their youth. Sophia made a compassionless face and so did her husband seeing through the imploring and only the turpitudes acted on. Vance Sr. struggled to find a peace for Vance Jr. that could refill the void his childhood left after being torn apart. He fought of the jovial, adventurous company he, Sophia, and their son got to know, felt affection toward, and had taken away from them in a fashion no one anticipated. This motivated Vance to think of and put together Operation Machine, his effort to turn the cohort into copies of the friends his son lost. Personal undercurrent aside, the project served to hand Gregorio a legion he could depend on for his more punishing tasks. It used sleep deprivation and cabin fever to devastate the brains of its subjects, pushing them to a point where surrender and servitude was their only out. Based on what Richter and Sterling observed, the project was flawless in its strive to bring the cohorts Numas to naught. Their hearts found it horribly difficult to watch, but their brains perceived it very differently. Richter enjoyed seeing Vance Sr. sit so proudly as it'll make what's about to happen all the sweeter. Sterling was disappointed that Sophia was spending the day with Vance Jr., but will take one Hurtado falling over none any day. The guards' patrols paused at an approaching sound that gradually loudened, puzzling them until where it came from revealed themselves. 
two missiles with Sierra written all over them. One impact blew a crater in the prison's adult block, while the other obliterated the area between the juvenile unit row and prison yard. Unbelievably, no staff or prisoners were seriously injured by either blast, spelling assault for one kind and hope for the other. Thrown off his chair by the impacts, Vance Sr. angrily got up as he saw two battalions swarm down the meadow and descend on the prison on his monitors. He lividly ordered guards and troops to utilize their every being to not let the enemy seize the inmates. Afraid of being executed for mutiny, his guards killed, wounded, or fired at prisoners and those in their ranks who hesitated to comply. Appalled to see this unfold, troops from both battalions sprayed them harder than water, leaving a nozzled hose set on jet. The guards charged into the battles with such commitment that they left the row minimally manned, believing that its innermost location would prevent infiltration. Vance felt a little better watching them and his troops hold the attackers off, but was jolted by grenades exploding in the direction of the row. He told himself that it's his enemies being blasted away and not the mentioned unit having a hole blown onto it. The second missile sheared off a big part of the row's roof as well as an equally large portion of its walling. Sunlight hit the unit like the first blue sky after a rainstorm, hitting the cohort with the best thing Dave felt in days. They cautiously crawled outside, breathed in the relatively fresh air, and adored the autumn mildness. The cohort discovered that the missile crafted a rubbled passageway to the yard. Their cue to crawl for it like their lives were on the line. Subsequent grenades reduced the prison's administrative wing to ash, leaving Vance, Richter, and Sterling as its only survivors. He anxiously ran to the yard while the couple darted for an exit and through the battling. Back at the Rudel Villa, Richter Jr., Darling, Danielle, and Daniela were sleeping when a blunt knock on the door peeved them awake. Wondering who in Walpolido could be up at this time of day, the elder two silently jogged into the twins' rooms. Richter and Darling softly told Danielle and Daniela to stay quiet, picked them up like babies, and rushed them downstairs as another pounding series hit the door. The elder two ran with the twins into a safe room that was also a basement, huddling in fear that something big may be unfolding 
in Walpolido. Throughout town, Yellow Cross troops roamed its streets in search of people who haven't reported breaking and entering homes to take them to their nearest precinct. Nowhere they looked were there any residents or visitors making it apparent to them that Walpolido had recently been evacuated. Troops exhausted their frustration and sense of failure by vandalizing the town to a pulp and moved on like their raid never took place shortly after without knowing that the town's people were in their safe rooms. Vance had the guards who stayed to defend the row be his encircling shield at the yard as the cohort emerged from the passageway. Never in his life had he felt exposed such that death was staring at him with his name on its readied scythe. This was when the ghosts that were Vance's past actions flew around him in a hurricane-like motion. Born during the Gregorio Sr. presidency, his parents were way up the Yellow Cross hierarchy by virtue of being in Cura's inner circle. Vance, the child, teenager, and young adult, seemed no less usual than an elite's unremarkable son. His life changed when he met Sophia at the farmer's market where she worked to pay for her university expenses. She shared Vance's life goals of being all-powerful and having many under his control. It was the heart that made them as alive as ever, leading to marriage, Vance Jr.'s birth, and their quick climb up the Sierra administrative ladder. They renewed their wedding vows weeks after Sophia earned a seat on the board of the juvenile unit that Vance Sr. found himself directing their chance to let their deepest, darkest qualities loose. His tenure began in January 1980 under his assurance that juveniles in his prison will be hit with the same fist that kept the adults in line. Vance showed no tolerance for inmates who broke the rules or defied his guards, having them sat down, restrained, and shoved into solitary housing cells for days at a time with near starvation rations. This agonized few into wanting to be good kids, continuing their misbehavior out of a hatred for him that they didn't have with his predecessors. Decades before, Robbie IV became the poster child of privileged infamy. Vance had a reputation of being a real piece of work with everyone he perceived as being inferior. Allegations adulterated his years as an older teenager, young adult, and ladder climber, but insufficient evidence prevented anything from coming of them. Vance kept his temper cool by living in a lap of luxury on the clock 
and off-fit, treating himself and those at his status level to flashy dinners and risque nightclubs. His tempers steaming and bubbling intensified in parallel to his inmates' increasingly habitual and brazen unruliness. Vance tried indulging his stress away, but its effectiveness waned the way antibiotics would if taken for too long. His temper boiled over and caught fire one dinner in August 1984 when the whole mess hall united against him. Monroe yelled the names of each person Vance was accused of abusing, egging Milburn into escalating that outburst into a sporty chant. Joby, Quentin, Lindy, Escarn, Rebecca, Merlin, Rochelle, Maxwell, Ridley, Riley, and others in the cohort joined in. Their chants were accompanied by calls for Vance to be jailed for everything he's done, enraging him into storming out, slamming the door, and screaming his head off. The cohort reveled their success in breaking their subwarden, believing that it'll shame him into resigning. From that night till Gregorio's coup, their conditions got no better, and Vance's board carried his order on. It was a disappointment made all the worse by the fall of Habsburgo V, handing their subwarden his chance to avenge his gravest humiliation. Vance wasn't worried that he was surrounded by the cohort joining his guards in having sturdy earplugs on as the alarm from the row attacked the yard. He grinned a chuckle so haughtily sinister that it offended those expressing the suffering that pleasured his brain. A nearby explosion abruptly put the alarm out of commission for good, leading Vance to find his shield on the ground with no signs of life. His ego imploded like a sinkhole when he saw the guns the cohort took from dead troops as they walked through the passageway. Vance's balance gave way as the cohort closed in and stepped over his shield, daunting him into kneeling with his hands up. Rochelle told him not to even fathom pleading for mercy as he'd never showed an ounce of it to any of his prisoners. Rebecca and Milburn gazed at their bayonets while ripping it off their guns, giving Vance two copies of a grin that placed him flat on his back, one that Austin would herself have. Two tank millimeters hit into the yard at opposite ends, engulfing it in a dusty smoke that the black hornets and red wasps used to safely barge in. Vance and the cohort were as stunned to see the two factions as they were to see them and each other. 
Gabino III was a soldier on the Red Wasp side, while the Black Hornets had Habsburgo VII fighting for them. Vance was sure he'd die on that day just by feeling the repugnance his face evoked in the veins of both factions. Red Wasps and Black Hornets had friends, siblings, relatives, and children who were irrevocably changed by his custody. Their wants to make Vance pay were equal in powerfulness, yet divergent with regard to how they'd go about it. The Black Hornets saw him as a human being who's done obscene wrong, whereas the Red Wasps equated him to a rabid wolf that deserved to be put down. Both factions aroused in Vance a vile disrelish with roots set in the era when Carlisle III held the foremost sway. The Palencia brothers felt a kinship with the Black Hornets, but their partners had the same feelings for the Red Wasps. Even though both quartets were optimistic that their trips home awaited those salvations were close in distance from one another, but so far apart tribally that their geographical closeness was picayune. Joby Jr. was itching to hand Joby Sr. his word that he'll never again start a fight, calling it the ugliest and most injurious thing he's ever done. Lindy wished to hug Grimsby Jr.'s ankles to show how sorry she was for involving herself in a theft that went very wrong. Quentin regretted violently submitting to his anger but won't show any remorse for the tirade he prepared for his parents upon his return. Escarn wasn't proud of the threats she dished out but won't feel shame in being the monster haunting her mom and dad at night. Before anyone moved, a brown cloud blasted through and away, the dome mushrooming the yard in a boom that blew it into a lethal pandemonium. Its steady settling gave sight to the yellow cross's headlong recapturing of Sierra, demoralizing the black hornets and red wasps into retreating like rabbits running from a pack of foxes. Out of every six red wasps, black hornets, or members of the cohort, one bit the dust, another two were captured, and the other three escaped. Despite regaining control of Sierra, the Yellow Jackets weren't in a celebrating mood as their prison's near fall was a testament of how human their movement really was. They were glad to be returning to Fort Kingfisher with Joby Jr., Quentin, Rebecca, Ridley, and others in the cohort they've captured. The Red Wasps were equally pleased with the juvenile prisoners they fled Sierra with, including Lindy, Escarn, Rochelle, and Riley. It was true 
that Bromelia City was in Yellowcross hands, but that didn't mean its rule was without opposition. Within the Soviet-like blocks that defined the capital's indigent side was a compressed concrete metropolis that took the form of a capsular cocoon. Its indiscernibility from a skyline and ground height made for a base Roy Sr. could hide in plain sight and use as a shelter for the poor and needy. Milburn was the first to arrive at the base's receiving area, exchanging blessed feeling smiles with Merlin. Their manly yet moving high five and hug spun into an embraceive spin when they saw that Maxwell and Monroe had also been freed, thanking the Lord for reuniting them. The happiness slowed and stopped to an unembrace when a troop regretted informing them that their partners didn't escape. This sucked the brothers' elation into a devastation more suffocating than quicksand, erasing every blot of their glee. The troop was unsure if their partners were together or separated and whether anyone had them now. This uncertainty had Maxwell refusing to accept the high likelihood that he'd find Ridley and learn that her love for him was no longer of her mind. Milburn was mad at himself for failing to save Rebecca when her life was at its most severe peril. Merlin stubbornly maintained his belief that Rochelle will run out of her captivity alive and with the same mind and soul that won over his infatuation. Monroe felt that he may as well mourn his loss of Riley, focusing on having closure and dealing justice to the devil who murdered the timid soul that stole his heart. Either way, the Palencia brothers looked forward to when they'll fight the Yellow Cross again, but decided to diligently train and patiently combat their way to that day. Gregorio didn't receive news of the attempted liberation of Sierra until a castle worker interrupted his dinner with Itzaso to inform him of it. He was none too pleased that Operation Machine was most likely not going to deliver what it promised. Over the phone, Etchelstone informed Gregorio that Vance Sr. was en route back to Lobotown. Alured Sr. butted into the call to say that one of his other operations was faring far better as the subjects involved had arrived, integrated, and assimilated. Gregorio thanked him for his fantastic update and had him tell that project's leader to keep his contact close and constant, saying that doing so will be crucial to its success. He told Alured to leave Vance Sr. to Etchelstone, whose plans to reassign him to something more suitable will rectify 
the misfortune at Sierra. Gregorio could say with certainty that the Hurtados won't be disappointed with their new situation, adding that the family will find it to be their safest and most enriching experience yet. Richter Sr., Sterling, and the Red Wasps who snuck them out of Sierra ventured by terrain infested with Gregorio's patrols. So much of where they turned had yellow jackets flying around or nests of them hanging above or burrowing below. Their trek to Walpolido worked its stagecoached buggies on along at speeds horses could outpace. Richter licked his lower lip at the prospect of making the Valverdes scream by turning two of their own against them. Sterling gently rubbed the left cheek of an unconscious Escarn, grinning a blush that tried not to cry at the possibilities in front of her. Rochelle and Riley joined Lindy and her sister in having their lights wet out by chloroform-soaked rags after the girls were meters from evading Richter and company. Richter and Sterling planned to introduce the sisterly pairs to their people as hard-bitten runaways desperate for sanctuary. In addition, the couple aimed to make the pairs help them raise their children and be role models they can look up to and learn a lot from. Deliberation attempted on Sierra would not be the last made on that prison or others in Bromelia and abroad. While the cohort had been broken into smaller groups, this wasn't to say that they wouldn't meet again because they later would, but on an exponentially larger stage where precedent and decency lacked. And as fate would have it, what went down at Sierra had consequences that'll reach well into the third millennium. And that was the second misfortune. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.